Let's make our way to 2 Corinthians, where we continue our journey through Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. We are going to, uh, this morning, get through all of six verses as we actually slow things down just a little bit to talk about an important topic concerning spiritual warfare. But before we dig into uh, that light topic, let's just remind ourselves where we have come to up to this point. We spent almost the entire year in First and Second Corinthians, but as a reminder, Paul planted this church back in chapter in Acts chapter 18. He was making his way through what is now modern-day Turkey. It was Asia Minor in that day, and he was planting churches as he went. And he arrived here in this uh, portion of territory known as Achaia, which was essentially southern Greece, in Acts chapter 18. And as he arrived there, he planted the church and then would spend 18 months getting things established, building relationships, setting up church leadership, only to then journey on from this point and continue his church planting mission. And as he went, he received a, a letter concerning things that were happening inside the church in Corinth. They were essentially uh, tore up from the floor up is what the letter said, at least in my version. And so as Paul received word, he found out all these issues that had arisen uh, not the least of which was division taking place inside the church in Corinth. They were arguing about the craziest of things. You know, who is your favorite Bible teacher? Who baptized who? And all this was bringing about a, a spirit of divisiveness. And so that's the first thing that Paul addressed. But there were other issues happening as well uh, that are more obvious, uh, including a guy sleeping with his stepmother, uh, you know, getting drunk in the line for communion, all kinds of things that were just, it was a wild scene that was taking place in the church in Corinth. And so Paul writes this letter in large part to correct uh, behaviors that were happening in Corinth. And for some, they accepted the letter. They actually repented and turned things around. You know, Paul's right. He's got some good points. We should probably not be getting drunk in the line for communion. These things make sense. But for others, uh, they, they, instead of taking Paul's word and actually applying it to their life, they turned things back around and threw it in the face of the Apostle Paul, and they questioned him. They questioned his character. They questioned his apostleship. They, they questioned even his, his physical attributes. They attacked Paul on all fronts. And so as we have arrived now to the second letter, Paul is essentially in Philippi now addressing their questions that he had based upon his first letter. He is addressing things in a very personal way. He's trying to clarify misunderstandings that they had in Corinth. He's answering a lot of the why behind the ministry of the Apostle Paul we get in this very personal letter. Now, when we were in chapters 8 and 9, if you guys were here for those, we had two straight weeks talking about giving. So if you missed that, uh, good job. You don't have to hear me talk about giving for another two straight weeks. So praise the Lord. But we survived that together as a church. But what we found as we went through those two chapters is, as Paul was addressing their finances, what he was really addressing was their heart. Their heart was ultimately the issue, and the heart is always at the heart of the matter. This was Paul's heart concerning giving, and this is really uh, God's heart concerning giving. And so all that to say is beneath these very physical issues, there was something spiritually taking place. And this is the case that we have as we operate. There are these uh, spiritual things that are happening behind the scene, what, what eye has not seen, but they manifest themselves in different ways spiritually. And so all this leads up to chapter 10, where Paul is going to address spiritual issues that are happening at the church. And so he, he's going to dig into the problem at hand, and he wants them to be educated 
about spiritual warfare and spiritual battles. Because if you if you're not fighting the correct battle, how do you expect to win the war? There's no way to win in this spot if you don't understand what and how you're actually fighting. So all that to say, we arrive in these first six verses. I'll read them all, and then we'll go back through them individually this morning. Now, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if walked as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. All right, take a deep breath. Let's dig in uh, to what Paul is saying. Beginning with verse 1, he identifies himself as being one who is pleading on their behalf. He says, I, Paul, am pleading with you, but not just pleading with you by by meekness and the gentleness of Christ. I'm, I'm not coming at you guns blazing is what Paul's saying, but I'm coming at you in the spirit of meekness. And it's important for us to understand as Paul is addressing them, that he's addressing them in this way because meekness isn't weakness, it's power under control. Uh, One of the best natural examples we have is that of a a stallion, a beautiful, powerful horse, and yet when it's bridled, when it's harnessed and it's under control, it's a thing that can be uh, productive in its, its very use. And so we see this power that's being harnessed by the Apostle Paul, but he connects it back to the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. The best example we have in history of meekness is none other than Jesus himself. He was God in the flesh, and yet he was very much under control in every situation. Matthew chapter 26 is one of those situations. And here, Jesus is just finished up praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be arrested by the Romans, illegally tried, and uh, sentenced to death, and then immediately crucified. So not a great evening by the world's standards. And here's Jesus in this spot. He's being betrayed by one of his 12 closest friends. And Jesus said to him, speaking to Judas, Friend, why have you come? And then they came and laid hands on him and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the ear of the high priest, excuse me, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put away your sword in its place, for all those who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? And then verse 54, How then can the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen? And in that very hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber, with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done so that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus wants to make it perfectly clear he was in control of the situation. Now for us, oftentimes when we're confronted in a spot like this, we react much like uh, the one who was with him, who isn't named in Matthew, but later we find out that was the Apostle Peter. We like him because he reacts often like we would like to react. He, he's confronted with this problem. What's he do? He pulls out a sword and he starts swinging it around. 
Uh, most accounts believe that Peter was actually trying to cut this guy's head off, but he was just a really bad shot. He hit the servant's ear, lopped his ear off. Later we find Jesus picked up the ear, which is a crazy scene, and just stuck it back on this guy's head, and his ear is made whole again. But, but the point of that is um, Peter reacts a lot of the times the way I react. Just starts swinging the sword around when I feel confronted, when I feel backed into a corner. And yet Jesus makes it very clear to Peter, look, don't you understand what's happening here? That if I wanted to, I could pray and with one word of my father, 12 legions of angels. Now, a legion in that day was between uh, four and 6,000 Roman soldiers. So uh, on average, if Jesus was saying this, he's saying essentially 60,000 angels would show up at my single prayer to defend me. And if you're not impressed by that, Second uh, Kings chapter 19, verse 35, in this spot, a guy, a king named Hezekiah is crying out for the Lord to defend him. He's crying out to the Lord because the king of Assyria has come and surrounded all of Jerusalem, a guy named Sennacherib. And it came to pass, in verse 35, on a certain night that the angel of the Lord, singular, went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses, all dead. One angel on one night wiped out an entire Assyrian army, 185,000. Jesus here in Matthew 26 says, I could call 60,000 of those guys to show up if I just gave my father the word. And yet he was so obedient to the will of the father, so in control of himself in the situation that, that he trusted in what God had for him in that moment. And so he, he didn't need to, to lash out. That's the idea. And what Paul is saying here is that I'm coming to you with that kind of control, not through my flesh, but through Christ Jesus. And by the way, this kind of control is available to us as well. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. You've got that same kind of power, but also the power to be in control of ourselves, of our emotions, of our situation, is what the Apostle Paul and what Jesus had. Now, as we continue here, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you. And so here Paul is now quoting some of the lashing that he's taking from his detractors. That church history tells us the Apostle Paul was not a great physical specimen. He was not one to behold that you would go, man, that's a powerful leader right there. We're told he was a little guy, kind of hunched over, had a hooked nose, maybe had an eye problem with some goop coming out. And you wouldn't look at him and go, there's the future of the church. Like that guy's clearly got it going on. And so people began to, to pick on Paul about his physical attributes. And before we get too carried away uh, slamming the Jews and the Greeks about looking for uh, physicality in a leader, uh, by the way, we do the same thing. You know, oftentimes the tallest kid in class ends up being the quarterback, right? So, so physical attributes play a lot into how we view leadership but not so with the Lord. What does God look upon? He looks upon the heart. And so while Paul wasn't imposing as a character, what was imposing was his handling of the word of God. It's God's word that was actually imposing. It's God's word where the power actually dwelt. And for that, these people had no defense. When Paul began to wield the sword of the word and explain and expose and open things up and say, this is what God says about the situation, they had no rebuttal to it. 
And so what they did was uh, name call. <laughs> Just like kids on the playground. You're short. You're little. You're no good. You know, they began to make fun of the Apostle Paul. This is why he says, I was lowly among you, but being absent, I'm bold toward you. I can write powerfully because of the word, the word of God. Excuse me. And verse 2. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. What Paul is addressing now is is he's going to come to Corinth. He's going to address those who are both sheep and those that are pretending to be sheep. And for those that are sheep, he's going to have to address them directly. He's going to have to say hard things, which, by the way, if you're in leadership, whether it be in a family or whether it be uh, in the workplace, you're going to have to say hard things at times. It's just the reality. And if you love people enough, you'll, you'll share with them honestly from a place of, of love and care because you want to see them get better. But there are other times when uh, those that come in that want to threaten the flock, that want to threaten that don't have people's best interest in mind, what Paul's saying is for those, uh, I'm going to be bold against them. I'm going to jerk a knot is what Paul is saying when it comes to those that want to uh, pretend like they're so self-righteous. These are wolves in sheep's clothing. So Paul as a shepherd wants to be able to, to bring his flock together to protect them. And for those that want to come in and harm the flock, he is not afraid to fashion a whip. Jesus in John chapter 2, verse 15, as he arrived in the temple in Jerusalem, and he arrived there, he saw money changers. He saw those that were taking advantage of the uh, the people as they came in to worship God. And when he made a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. As Jesus arrived and his people were being taken advantage of, he was so angered that he fashioned a whip and he, being meek, being mild, was not afraid to be a shepherd and drive those guys out of there, which I I get excited about. I mean, this is Jesus whipping people. I'm, I'm fired up about this. He's turning over tables. He's driving people. I'm like, oh, Jesus, hey! And, and then... Uh, I reflect a little bit, and I realize I love it when Jesus does that uh, for others, but I get a little upset when he overturns tables in my life. <laughs> I get a little upset when he shows up and there's there's self-righteousness happening in my heart, and there's there's a little Pharisee in me that needs to be driven out. I'm not nearly as excited about that, and yet, because he's a good father, he's a good shepherd, he knows I need him. He loves me enough to fashion a whip and drive those things out of my life that need to be driven away. Now, Paul continues here in verse 3, saying, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. And so we we have this outer dwelling, this physical presence that we use to communicate back and forth, and yet this is not really what's happening. The, The actual happenings are behind the scene. There is a spiritual battle taking place. There is war that our eyes can't see physically. And so what Paul is describing is there is a a realm spiritually where war is taking place. It's not according to the flesh. It's according to the Spirit. Verse 4, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. There's a war going on. Now, on June 6, 1944, General Dwight D. Eisenhower had a decision to make. 
they had positioned themselves on a spot to be able to storm the beaches of Normandy to hopefully change the direction of World War II and Nazi Germany trying to take over all of Europe and eventually all the world. And what General Eisenhower did is he sent 155,000 young men onto the beaches of Normandy on a day that's known as D-Day. And as the shots came in and as blood was being spilled, wave after wave of Allied troops went in to pull down the strongholds of the enemy. And it was a bloody day. 10,000 young men lost their lives on the shores of Normandy. And it will go down in history as uh, the greatest invasion of all time. And it was so very costly. And yet what I would share with you is it was the second greatest invasion of human history. That the greatest invasion in human history occurred 2,000 years earlier when God became man. He gave himself over as an infant for a young peasant couple to raise and would eventually pour out his blood on Calvary so that you and I could have the greatest victory from our greatest enemy. Now, for the Allied soldiers, if they had failed in that spot to take down the strongholds of the enemy, our world would look very, very different. And the same plays out spiritually. If Jesus had failed in his mission to lay down his life, to pour out his blood, if the payment had not been accepted, our lives would look drastically different. Our eternity would look drastically different. And yet, as the Prince of Darkness on that day 2,000 years ago was dancing around, convinced that the Messiah had been killed, that he'd been crucified, and all looked like it was lost. What Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, is this is what was really going on behind the scenes. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. What Jesus was actually doing was, as he laid down his life, he was triumphing. He was having victory. He was having a field day with the principalities and the powers that thought they were going to come out victorious. He went down into hell. He whooped the hiney of Satan. He took the keys of hell and death so that we could be free for all of eternity. And when he uttered the words to Telestai in John 19.30, it was finished that day. Paid in full for all of eternity for us. And so as a result, we no longer have to fight for victory. This is the beautiful part. We instead get a fight from a place of victory. It's drastically different. Now, the battle continues to rage on. This is one of the questions that comes up. As the battle rages on, if the war has already been won, if the war has, in fact, ended, why do we have to continue to fight battles? Well, here's the reality. The Germans didn't just give up that day. There were more strongholds to take. There was more blood that had to be shed. And yet, the battle was changed. The same is true for us spiritually. The battle has been, uh, the war has been won, but the battle rages on because the enemy won't give up. He is determined to take as many people with him to hell as he can. And for the rest of us that have given our life to Jesus, he's determined to render us ineffective if he possibly can. He battles, he wars against us. But again, we fight from a place of victory. We are victorious. We have won. But what Paul wants to do and what we see in the New Testament is we're encouraged to actually be 
uh, intelligent. We're not to be ignorant about his battle tactics. So what are ways that Satan attacks us? 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. He only has three plays in his playbook, three yards and a cloud of dust, and this is what he goes for every time. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not the Father, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The same three plays. The lust of the flesh, it feels good. The lust of the eyes, it looks good. The pride of life, look how good I am. And Satan runs it over and over and over again on us, battering us. So what can we do? So glad you asked. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul encourages the church in Ephesus to arm themselves for battle. And what he says here famously, beginning in verse 10, he says, Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and the, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication, being watchful to the end with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. We are encouraged to take up the full armor of God. And if you have to daily, I would encourage you to Flip open Ephesians chapter 6 and just recite those things. Lord, help me to put on, to gird my waist with truth, to put on the breastplate of righteousness, to put on the, all my feet the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. He's continuing to fire on us over and over again. But remember, we're not fighting flesh and blood. We're fighting principalities and powers. So it's not what the way it seems with our eyes. We're not at war with our, our neighbor or our co-worker or our kids or our spouse. This is not where the war actually exists. It's all coming from the enemy. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says is this. First Peter. Where'd you go, Pete? There he is. First Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Notice with me as Peter writes this, he says, because your adversary, the devil. This is not an adversary or the adversary. This is your adversary, the devil. It is personal. And what he wants is you dead. You ineffective. You ruined, just like he's ruined for all eternity. Make no bones about it. He is the ultimate enemy. So as we prepare ourselves for this spiritual battle, the question is, what can we do to fight against them? A few suggestions as we look at this, three to be exact. Now, the first I want to mention is we, we have the opportunity to proclaim aloud the victory. In Joshua chapter 6, I'll turn to the Old Testament for a few examples. Joshua chapter 6, this actually begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 13 with a promise. 
Genesis chapter 13, verse 14, God here speaking to Abram says, And after uh, Lot had separated from him, the Lord said, Lift your eyes now and look at the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I will give to you and your descendants forever. God gave to Abram a promise of this land. Now, 400 years has passed. Abraham didn't see this in his flesh, but in the spirit he was able to no doubt see what was taking place. God delivering the nation of Israel out of Egypt, delivering them from the world, bringing them through the wilderness. They would spend 40 years in the wilderness because of their own lack of faith, their own unbelief in what God said. And yet here you are in Joshua's day, in his generation, in chapter 6, they've just prepared themselves to cross the Jordan. And what do they see? But a double-walled city of Jericho. Oh, stink. Double walls. Like, we can't defeat that. They're thick. They're tall. How are we going to have a victory in what the Lord says? I'm going to give you a great battle plan. I want you to march around the city for six days, one time, every day. And then you get to the last day, march around it seven times. And at the end, I want you to blow the trumpet. I want you to shout. I want you to watch as the walls come tumbling down of Jericho. Beautiful promise. But man, if you're Joshua, what a terrible battle plan. That's awful. Like, really? Trumpets and shouting? Like, that's how we're going to win? But sure enough, Joshua, through obedience, he was obedient to the Word of God. And what he found was his enemy stood no chance. And, and notice with me, as they blew the trumpets and they shouted, what they were doing was proclaiming victory before they actually had the victory. Normally, you would shout for victory after your enemy was defeated. You would stand over the top of them and, yeah, look at us. You know, like Sunday, you score the touchdown, you throw the ball, you'd shout for victory. But here, they're proclaiming victory before they'd ever even scored, before the walls ever tumbled. And this is what God gives us the opportunity to do. We proclaim the victory because we fight from a place of victory. And so we had this beautiful opportunity to just partner with God. And the key to success was simple. Obedience to God's word and proclaiming the victory. I'm going to proclaim what your word says. All that leads me to ask this question. What does your internal dialogue look like? I'm not talking about the fake Jesus stuff that you show up with when people ask you how you're doing at church. They're like, I'm good, you're good, we're all good. What does it look like inside your head when it's just you? What are you really dialoguing with yourself about? If you're anything like me, it's often all my shortcomings, all the ways I'm a failure, all the ways I didn't get it right, messed up again today, shortcoming, shortcoming, no promised land for you. Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is before they ever even entered the promised land. What God says, I'll skip around, I'll begin in verse 3, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. Verse 5, Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possess, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. In verse 9, The Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand and the fruit of your body and the increase of your livestock and the produce of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. God doesn't say any of those things. His promise isn't any of those things. His promise is only good. He's looking forward to rejoicing 
over you. But the enemy whispers these lies into our head. And the encouragement here is proclaim the victory. You're actually a victor. If you've accepted Jesus, the wall has tumbled. You are victorious. And so as we cross over the Jordan into the promised land, by the way, the old hymn we used to sing, a crossing over the Jordan, and we're going into heaven, beautiful song, a completely not correct theologically. Uh, not even a little bit. The, the picture of crossing the Jordan into the promised land is the picture of us entering into the abundant Christian life, which is why there are battles. It's why there is Jericho. God never promised it would be perfect. He said, I'm going to deliver you and give you a victory. And so as we enter into the promised land and we see there are still battles raging, if that is your question, understand that God didn't promise to, to, to give us no battles. He did promise to deliver us through them, which is why my second point is this, that we're called into this life, we're called to plow diligently. We're called to proclaim the victory. Secondly, we're called to plow away diligently. Now, if you fast forward in the history of the nation of Israel, they didn't adhere to what God said, which was this, when you enter the promised land, uh, drive out all the inhabitants. It sounds brutal, but the reality is God gave them 400 years to get it right, and they continued uh, specifically in the the uh, sacrificing of children. It's what the Lord could not stomach. He would not tolerate it. He said, you've got to drive them out, be done with them. And if you don't, they're going to be a stumbling block for you. So what happens? Of course, they did not drive them out completely. Guess what? They became a stumbling block for the children of Israel. And so now they're in this spot where they're struggling with idolatry. They're, they're taking on the idol worship of the land around them that was originally given to them. This is your land. Take possession of it. So at this point in time in Judges 6, a guy named uh, Gideon is going to be approached by the Lord. But before he's approached, the Midianites have now come down into the land of Israel. They're oppressing the people of Israel. They're stealing their grain. They're stealing their livestock. They're starving them out, essentially. And so Midian, Gideon excuse me, finds himself where he is uh, threshing the grain in a wine press. Why a wine press? Because it was hidden down in the valley where the Midianites couldn't see him. And so he's down in this valley. He's threshing the grain. He's trying to just save this little bit of grain for his family. And here's what the Lord does in verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon is cowering in fear from his enemy, hiding in a wine press. And the Lord shows up and says, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Why on earth would he say that? Gideon was no mighty man. And yet God saw something in Gideon that Gideon didn't see himself. He saw future greatness. He saw victory. How often we are hiding, cowering from our enemy. But God says, you're a mighty man or a woman of valor. You're a victor in this spot. Now, Gideon asks a question of the Lord, which oftentimes, uh, I'm actually amazed he's brave enough to ask this. He says, if, if you're the Lord, then why is all this happening? Why is everything in my life a wreck? Why do I not see miracles? Why are there not victories? Why are we being captive under the Midianites? And the Lord answered for Gideon the way he often answers us when we cry out to him, uh, not directly. He doesn't answer Gideon's question at all. Instead, he redirects his 
vision to something spiritual that's taking place. He sends, in verse 25, Gideon into the house of his father to tear down the idols that were there in his father's house. Verse 25, It came to pass the same night the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull and the second bull of seven years old and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the wooden image that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wooden image which you shall cut down. He says, go in there and obliterate those idols, burn them up and make a sacrifice to them. This is the real issue you've got, Gideon. It's this issue of idolatry. And so if you want to see a victory, tear down the idols, tie them to the plow and pull those things over and then worship me. Now notice what Gideon does. So Gideon took ten men among his servants and did as the Lord said to him. What that speaks to me is Gideon needed accountability. Oftentimes, this is the place where we lack. We don't want to have accountability. We don't want to be honest with our brothers and our sisters and say, look, I can't. I need you to come alongside me. I need to be accountable in this thing, in this place, because it's because it's difficult to tear down idols. But what I would share with you is it doesn't matter if it takes 10 men, 10 years, 10 times, 10,000 times. Keep plowing. Take with you who you need to take with you to tear down those idols. Now, for some, you've gone in and you've, you've plowed and you've taken care of idols, and yet you feel like the ordeal just continues to press in on you. And maybe the question is, why do I have to keep dealing with this? This thing should be over and done. And what I want to share with you is there's a very real possibility that other people are watching you plow. And there are people that are experiencing the same things that you've experienced, that are, that are in a spot that you were in years before, and they need some kind of hope. They need to see what it looks like in the enduring Christian life to just keep plowing. And they find tremendous encouragement from your story, from your testimony, from your diligence. Now, there are others where you've pulled down idols and you feel like you're in the uh, been there, done that, got that t-shirt camp. I'm done tearing down idols. What do I do? Well, here's what Jesus would say. Luke chapter 9, as it relates to to plowing down the idols. In Luke chapter 9, verse 62, Jesus says, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of heaven. That seems harsh. What Jesus is trying to encourage us to do is when we put our hand to the plow, we get to work. We are to keep our eyes straight ahead. You look back and start looking at all the things you were in your past that did or didn't go right. The next thing you know, the road starts looking like that. And Jesus is saying, when you put your hand to the plow, when you begin to obey my word, do what I've called you to do, you just keep plowing. And if you think you plowed enough, plow more. Just keep plowing. Continue to press forward one foot at a time. This is the key to victory in the spiritual realm is proclaiming victory and plowing away diligently. We live a life of plowing forward. Now, lastly, verse 6, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. The final thing we can do is we pull things down totally, completely eradicate them. Now, in the history of the nation of 
Israel. Uh, they've got a bit of a sordid past. David started off pretty well, but we know of some of his issues. He gave way to his son Solomon, who did pretty well until he decided to marry 700 women and have 300 girlfriends. Uh, not a great track record. And so they would lead him away from the Lord. And then his son Rehoboam, he was no better than Solomon was, in fact, far, far worse. So when people came to Rehoboam as the new king and they said, look, your your dad taxed us to death. How about you let up a little bit? Rehoboam said, look, uh, my finger is thicker than my father's waist. If you thought he taxed you, you better hold on, sweetheart. And so for that reason, the entire kingdom was ripped from Rehoboam's hand. They, they split apart. Ten tribes said, forget that. They went on with another king to the north. And from that point forward, as you read through the books of history, there is then uh, Israel that's listed as one kingdom and Judah that's listed as the other kingdom, the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin to the south. Now, all that history to say that you've got 20 kings in the history of the nation of Israel, those northern uh, 10 tribes. And out of those 20 kings, up to the Assyrian deportation in 722, exactly zero good kings. Every one of them a bigger stinker than the one before. They were terrible kings. Now, you go to the nation of Judah to the south. They also had 20 kings leading up to their deportation by Babylon in 586 B.C. And out of their 20, they had five good kings. So not so great. Uh, close to the Mendoza line, not going to make it to the Hall of Fame, but they're at least doing better than the North. And so in Second uh, Kings chapter 15, we arrive at one of those good kings, a guy named Azariah, or sometimes called uh, Uzziah, in verse 1 of chapter 15, in the 27th year of Jeroboam, the king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, the king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old. When he became king, he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Good job, Uzziah. According to all that his father Amaziah had done, except that the high places were not removed and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And so you've got this good king, uh, Uzziah, who reigned for 52 years. And for 52 years, he cleaned the place up. I mean, from the time he was 16, he was a good leader. The streets looked good. The temple looked good. Everything that people could see on the outside looked like it was going really well. Except he did not tear down the high places. Now, what were the high places? These were the spots that were hidden. They were out of anybody's normal view and, and where the, the idolatry would happen. They'd have sexual immorality. There was all these things that we just don't need to talk about that over there. We're just going to focus on how clean and cleaned up things are on the outside. And so he refused to tear down the high places. And as a result, the nation fell back into, you guessed it, idolatry. Because these things are, are hidden. And here's the thing about tearing down high places. It takes intentionality. It takes determination. It, it, it takes sometimes making ourselves very uncomfortable, dealing with things and topics that we don't want to deal with. But but if we want to have victory, proclaiming the victory, if we want to plow away diligently, at some point we have to address the high places in our life, if not for our sake, for our children and our children's children's sake. We have to turn the corner by tearing down the high places. But oftentimes what happens is we just get tired. It's like, man, I don't want to fight anymore. I'm tired 
of battling. I would rather just have peace. Now, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 13, we read that Abraham was given the nation of Israel as an inheritance for his children and all the generations to go on down. And so what we've seen is throughout human history is that over and over again, God gives Israel back to the children of Abraham. Even after 2,000 years have passed and all looks lost, May 14th, 1948, Israel is revived. Again, just as Isaiah said, I'll, I'll bring them back a second time. God, God did what he said he was going to do. But for the nation of Israel, what they decided in 2005 is uh, they were tired of fighting. This thing is just, this is getting hard. And so to make peace, they gave the Gaza Strip over to uh, Palestine Authority. And within a, a year and a half, what was given over to the Palestinians uh, quickly was taken control of by Hamas, a known terrorist organization. So what I'm saying about this, making a spiritual connection and not trying to make this thing political, is that they gave away what God said was yours. This is for you. I'm giving you authority over this. And yet, for the purpose of peace, they gave it away. Then on October 7th, just a few weeks ago, Hamas invaded southern Israel. They did things to women and children there that are unspeakable, so awful were the atrocities that Israeli soldiers were, were vomiting on the spot. It was that bad. Why? Because they wanted to utterly destroy Israel. They wanted them dead. They wanted to eradicate God's word. The same is true in our life, by the way. That God, when we accept Jesus as our Savior, He takes a look at the landscape of our mind and our heart, all the things that really make us us. And He says, look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, look to the west. It's all yours. I've proclaimed this. I've taken this territory back for you. Go and, and take hold of these things. And yet oftentimes what happens is we decide because it's just too doggone hard. I don't want to take possession of all of it. I, I'm just going to leave the high place over here. I'm not going to mess with that right now because it's more peaceful if I leave it. But the enemy is never satisfied with just a little peace. He always wants all of us. He always wants us completely and totally incapable of being any kind of function for the Word of God, for, for, for the Kingdom of God. He wants to render us helpless and worthless and useless, and so he attacks us. And what James says is, when we begin to compromise, compromise leads way to corruption, and then corruption gives birth to sin, and when sin is full grown, it always brings about death. So the, the challenge for us is, where has the enemy caused you to compromise? What, what spots has he has he promised peace if you just leave him alone in the spot, and yet he is going to rear his ugly head, and he's going to come back at us. And what the Lord wants us to do is completely tear down the high places. This is what Paul is talking about here in verse 5. He's saying, pull down the strongholds, casting down arguments, every high thing, not most of the high things, every high thing, tear them down bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That means every lie from the enemy, we are called to hold it up to the cross and say, does this apply to what Jesus said about me? If not, send it to hell. That's where it came from. That's where it needs to stay. 
If it doesn't apply to the cross, it has no reference in my life whatsoever. We are called to bring those things into obedience. Every single thought that way. Bringing it under subjection to the cross of Jesus. And then punishing the disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. When we see areas of disobedience, we have this opportunity to punish that so that we can live in freedom. Now, oftentimes we get tired, though, of the struggle, right? The struggle, and we wonder, how long, oh Lord, do I have to struggle in this spot? And here's what I want to tell you. I hope it's encouraging. Um, If you're here and you're struggling, here's the good news. You're alive. Where there's struggle, there's life. And if you're struggling, you are alive. You know who doesn't struggle? A corpse. Go check one out. No struggle there. They're flatliners, right? There's no struggle in that spot. But if you're struggling, you're alive. If you're struggling, there's still a chance for you to work through and past that thing. You can see people as you walk around. I mean, go to the Walmarts, right? And look at people that are, it's dead people walking around. They're all around us. They're not struggling because they are dead. It's the saddest thing you'll ever see. They don't have the same opportunity we have to battle through these things and through these challenges and have the promise of eventual freedom. They've been taken into captivity, and there's no fighting. What we have the opportunity to do is fight and stand for our freedom. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 is this, where the Spirit of the Lord is, and where the, excuse me, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, or there is freedom. When the Spirit of the Lord exists in us, there is an opportunity there for freedom, for the chains to be off, for the shackles to be gone. Now it means lots of times I'm going to have to just keep plowing. I don't feel like worshiping today. I'm going to proclaim a victory anyway. Lord, let let some kind of worship come out of my mouth. I don't feel like reading today. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read. I'm going to spend some time in the Word just plowing through things. I don't feel like pulling down uh, idols today and, and destroying them. And yet what the Lord says is just pray. Just mutter something out and trust that the Spirit will make intercession for you. So we have this promise of freedom that exists only in the Spirit. Lord, we thank you. And we praise you for difficult topics that come up. And it's so very necessary. Thank you, Father, for honing us in on the heart of the issue. These are spiritual battles that we are in the midst of. And Lord, we are we are not capable of handling these. But we are capable of handling these with you. Lord, help us to accept your help. Help us to listen to what it is you would have us to do, to be able to proclaim victory, to plow away religion, to pull down idols totally in our life. Thank you, Lord, that you are gracious and give us time to work through these things. Thank you, Lord, for the people who get to witness us plowing away diligently and get to peer in. We get the chance to come alongside and share of your goodness with you. Lord, what a beautiful thing. Lord, continue to build us up in Jesus' name.